When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. My email box full of union members from around the country going, Rick, your Teamsters Union, what gives? And what gives is on Wednesday, uh, there was a, a lot of information being thrown around about my union, the Teamsters Union, of which I have been a member for, for some 35 years. And not not good. <laughs> not for good reasons. I, I like seeing my union in the news when they're negotiating good contracts, winning better wages, hours, conditions for our members. Uh, when they are raising the standard of living and working people in this country, when we're when we're when we're winning, Wednesday was was not that day. Uh, Wednesday was not that day because uh, it was it was two stories simultaneously, and and I think strategically chosen to get it all out in one day. Uh, the first thing I came across was the fact uh, that uh, well, uh, the Teamsters Union is going to pay out about what I think two point nine million dollars in. Uh, and lawsuit money to a number of employees that were fired on day one. And look, I, I, you know, like anything, uh, I, I question some leadership. Like any leaders, they're going to have to expect their decisions to be questioned and ultimately held accountable. And you know, I've you know I've talked about this, uh, but the news Wednesday, uh, some seriously unforced errors. Now, like I said, I, I questioned at the very beginning on day one. Uh, the staffing changes that were made and how they were made. And and I said, look, at the time ago, this is not good. This is going to come back to bite them. Um, what I affectionately call the Tuesday Massacre, where a lot of people that I've known for years were were summarily dismissed via email. And it wasn't... It, it wasn't. It wasn't a good thing. It was. Hey, uh, congratulations! You got this email. Don't come back to the office. We'll mail you your stuff. You're done. And 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 look, I I fully understand people wanting to put their people into place. You know, having been around this gig as long as I have, you know that's how the game is played. When their new leadership comes in, there's a house cleaning that goes on. But this lawsuit, um, you know, on racial discrimination lines does not look good for the union where you got rid of a good majority of the people of color that were working in the union and then replaced them with non-people of color. It looks from the outside, whether that was the intention or not, and I'm not saying it was, uh, because the union did not admit any liability. They simply settled the claim uh, to, to be done with it. Uh, but $2.9 million in dues money is a lot of money. Uh, it is. Uh, and the allegations, you know, was a violation of, of the D.C. Human Rights Act uh, of, you know, and, and the part that I had a problem with was then going out and saying that all the people who were let go were lazy and bad apples and things like that. 
it's, it's not good. It's not becoming. And knew at some point uh, it would it would come around and bite bite the administration in the behind. I didn't think it'd be this soon. I thought it'd be at election time. Uh, but here here this is. Uh, and again, you know, changing in staffing is normal. It happens. This I just questioned the way it went about it and wasn't thrilled about it. So for, out of the gate, you know, I'm going, well, I voted for him. I hope I hope we're going in the right direction. And then I find they pulled out of the change to win uh, group that they were a part of, that they had helped begin to start. They pulled out of the strategic organizing committee, basically isolating themselves from the rest of the movement. And, and, and I'm not so thrilled about that. But again, I'm not the leader. I'm just a member going, okay, I'm, let's see how this plays out. Some of the things I've been seeing lately, the, uh, the, the pilgrimage down to Magalago and the thumbs up picture, you know, made me question where we're going. And, and for a while, I've had an uneasy feeling because the union that I had had a very good relationship with over the years have had many guests on. I've had had you know, leadership on for years uh, was suddenly radio silent. We were getting nothing from them, no guests, anything. And that that's troubling. So when this whole Trump thing came up, we go, well, am I surprised? Not really. And now we find out on Wednesday that Trump went and met with the Teamsters at in the Teamsters headquarters, uh, seeking their endorsement. They were, he was invited. He showed up. And I got to tell you, I'm surprised he showed up. But I, I got to think that the that he went for a reason. Uh, but the, the headlines were NBC, Trump meets with Teamsters as he targets Biden's support. CNN, Trump meet, meets with Teamsters as he looks to peel off union voters from Biden. The Houston Chronicle, uh, after Teamsters meeting, Trump says, possible union endorsement stranger things have happened and and I, I see this stuff and i'm going he didn't go to to peel off union votes he didn't go to you know to make biden just look bad he went to get the endorsement he went in there with something uh to say look little arm twisting a little little bullying because bullies no bullies and um Am I surprised? So as I've been talking about this the last day or so, um, I think it's on the table. And I said this a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago. It's on the table that the Teamsters could possibly endorse Donald Trump, which would be a huge mistake, and I'll go into that in a second. Or, or it could just be a non-endorsement year where the union endorses no one, which would still be a major slap in the face to Biden. And still could be hurt, harmful to the labor movement as a whole. But I think the Washington Post got it right. The Washington Post headline was Teamsters to meet with Trump. Some members are furious. This member, absolutely, given the fact that I know who Donald Trump is. Because I watched him for four years in the White House. I watched him for 20 years as a business person in New York, cheating workers out of virtually everything he could. Uh, the quote, what was the quote he had? I know the unions, they're dues-sucking people. They just want their dues and they couldn't care less. The guy who said that he's 100% in favor of right to work. The guy who has done so many things to harm working people over the years and you're going to platform him. This is my problem. 
oh, but we're just talking. No, no. You know who he is. This guy has never, never. There are some Republicans. You go, well, maybe. Maybe there's a vote or two that we can we can get out of him. There's nothing Donald Trump has done to help working people. It's not. Please, point, point it to me. I want to see it. So when I look at this, uh, I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit miffed, a bit angry. And a lot of the co- communications I've been getting from members across the country, they are too. Now, here's the thing. A couple of people have said, well, if they endorse Donald Trump, I'm not paying dues. I'm going to... No. Absolutely, positively, no. You do not ever drop out of your union. You do not become a Beck objector. You do not do that. You stay in, you fight, you pay your dues, and you change leadership with your vote because... If you don't, if you're not a dues-paying member, you don't get to vote. And that is your power as a member of, of the union. It is democracy in the workplace. So all the people who sent me that, well, I'm just going to stop paying dues. No, lose that from your mind completely. And promise to vote in the next election. That's my thought. I want to hear yours, though. Email me, Rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Um, this a big deal or much ado about nothing? Do you think the union's going to endorse Biden after all he has done, not just for the, the movement as a whole, but for the Teamsters? Want to hear your thoughts? Rick at the ricksmithshow.com. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, 2023, we saw massive, massive layoffs in the uh, media sector, jobs being slashed by companies seeking to fatten the bottom line and, well, compete with other sources and doing that uh, like they do on the backs of working people. You know, the workers who make their outlets run. Well, 2024 is shaping up to follow, well, sadly, 2023. Uh, as we see now, the Los Angeles Times announcing, what, 20% uh, layoff of its newsroom employees. Sports Illustrated, uh, I guess, dumped most of its staff. Time Magazine's talking about, fit or, or has already, or is going to terminate 15%. And down the line, we see these outlets from Business Insider to Forbes uh, to Condé Nast, all of these these places going, hey, it's a good time to start slashing and burning and then overworking the people that we're just going to make feel grateful to be around. But here to tell, here to share some thoughts on what's going on and maybe how we stop some of this stuff. I've asked John Schloys to come talk with us. John is the president of the News Guild. Uh, they are part of CWA. John, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me, Rick. So walk me through, what are, what are we seeing here? I mean, I'm I'm looking at, at these numbers and it just seems like the entire industry is going, hey, now's a good time to slash and burn some of this stuff. Uh, what's going on? 
Yeah, it's like all the billionaires get in a room together and are like, hey, does uh, layoff sound good in uh, the late part of January? That seems to be what they're deciding to do. So yeah, you've got a billionaire owner of the Los Angeles Times who uh, is, is trying to lay off uh, about 100 different workers. This is where I used to work. These are my former colleagues, amazing journalists who uh, are award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning, award-winning journalists who've done fantastic work to make sure that like, Southern California is informed and making sure that uh, the government isn't corrupt and that power is being held to account. That's what journalists do on every single day. Company there wants to lay off 100 people, says that it doesn't have enough money. But again, you get a billionaire owner. You know, last year, late last year, we had Jeff Bezos uh, move to do layoffs. He called them buyouts, but layoffs uh, of about 240 different people. I was at the Washington Post. But uh, then around the same week here this year, uh, along with the LA Times with Sports Illustrated, that seems to really just be union busting uh, 101, uh, where the company is uh, the company that's been given the license or pays for the license uh, to to run Sports Illustrated and operate it, stopped paying its fee to have that license. So now it's like, well, we have to lay off everyone, but they only laid off the unionized workforce, not the managers. So. Uh, there, we've actually filed an unfair labor practice. The folks are really uh, amped up and upset about it. You know, uh, we're asking folks to to support the Sports Illustrated staff union. Uh, Time Magazine, like you said, uh, they're trying to lay people off. That's a that's a decently uh, supposedly decently run company, but they've decided they want to shed and get in the business too. And then Condé Nast uh, is another one. Uh, you know, it's eleven different brands. They're trying to lay off uh, about a hundred workers too. Uh, it's illegal for them to do that in this moment. In status quo, we're still fighting for a first contract for about 500 workers uh, at Condé Nast. So I don't know. It's like all the billionaires get together in a room and decide, uh, is this a good time to to do the layoffs? Uh, and then they just coordinate. But they're taking it out on, on folks who live paycheck to paycheck at these outlets. Yeah. No. And, you know, as I was reading through some of this stuff, my, my mind goes, is this the, the pushback from Wall Street? Is this the hedge fund managers, the billionaires, uh, you know, sitting there? You know, those working people, they're getting a little uppity. Uh, they're unionizing. They're, you know, they're asking for better wages, hours, conditions. It's now time to put them back in their place because uh, I got that sense in that field. Do you share that? I think that that's part of it. You know, there's this this feeling, I think, in a lot of newsrooms by uh, by the quote unquote leaders of the newsroom, right? Management having felt like they've lost control because they've done a terrible job over the last decade, really of listening to their workers and implementing policies and decisions through collective bargaining to actually respect their workers. So, you know, this constant cycle of layoffs, the lack of decent wages that keep up with inflation, uh, the ridiculous greed for a lot of these companies. And we've got layoffs also hitting uh, a place like Insider, Business Insider, that's owned by Axel Springer. That, that company is putting hundreds of millions of dollars, spending hundreds of millions of dollars in stock uh, uh, dividend payouts. Like, they don't need to do this. Uh, they could invest in workers. And so, you know, over the last decade, journalists and media workers have gotten fed up with it and they've pushed back. They've unionized at record level. Now they're going on strike on a record level. So it could be some element of that, but it's it's really dark. No, it's I mean, because really I, I look at this and the union busting is really apparent. I mean, I, I look at what's going on and in, in kind of in my neck of the woods out in Pittsburgh, uh, where the Post-Gazette workers have been on strike for, it seems like, forever. And the family that owns this is like, no, screw you, we're, we're doing nothing. And sadly, our laws are so weak and broken uh, and, and outdated that, well, they get away with it. 
I used to think that, Rick. I used to say our labor law is broken in the United States of America. Now I'm like, no, this is this is intended. This is working as intended, right? Uh, it's not like we give a gun and a handcuff to the NLRB to go enforce a law that Congress passed. I think that they should actually have the right to go and arrest the boss for breaking the law. But instead, it's a little tiny citation through the administrative court process. And then you get a decision by a judge and then the company can appeal it. And so the company is just avoiding actually following the law, specifically in Pittsburgh, all the way through because they've got the money and resources to spend, I guess, more than $1,000 an hour for an attorney. But it's it's a total disgrace to to folks in Pittsburgh who have been on strike for 16 months and haven't had a, a, a across the board raise for everyone in more than 15 years. Let that sink in. I mean, 15 years. Now, I know most working people, um, they, they, they've, they're living the same kind of a sad reality that wages just haven't gone up over the last you know decade or two. And that comes back to the fact that we don't have the bargaining power or the the laws in place. And, and maybe I agree with you that they're working where they're, where they're supposed to, to, to make a slow delaying process that, you know, doesn't really help workers as it should. Uh, but it seems like it seems like, you know, now is the time that they're they're they're, they're putting their foot down a little bit, a little bit harder. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you know, that's causing, I think, a uh, a. Uh, uh, a mixture of like different fighting, right? So we're seeing, you know, last year in 2023, we saw a huge amount of labor activity with UAW, with Starbucks. We had uh, we had 36 strikes in the News Guild in 2023. That's never happened in our 90 years of existence. You know, when labor law and the, you know, the way that the National Labor Relations Board is supposed to function doesn't actually function at all and it doesn't get things done, you're going to see more militant collective action from workers. I, I think that's great. That's the thing that actually moves the boss. But we're seeing this fight and it's going to get worse because the, the corporate greed is completely out of control, especially in places like Pittsburgh. You've got millionaire owners with a profitable cable company who just want the newspaper as sort of like a uh, um, a little shiny toy that they can call their own, right? Because they fashion themselves as these newspaper barons from the early 1900s. Um, but they've got tons of money. It's all about greed. And they're trying to put their their boot on the neck of, of the worker and trying to prevent them from actually getting basic things. Our bargaining requests and demands in Pittsburgh are pretty basic. They're the lowest we've got anywhere else. We're asking for affordable health insurance and for the company to follow the law. That's what it's been since the strike began 16 years ago. We're not even asking for across the board uh, wage increase here. We want affordable health insurance. We want the company to follow the law, and they're just refusing to do it. But, you know, you, you said something that, that piqued my interest because I've been saying for years we need to have a much more aggressive, much more militant labor movement. Working people in this country, I think, have been too complacent. I go back to some of the stories that my grandparents and their friends told about, you know, coming back from World War II and going to the shop floor and fighting for what they created, the most prosperous working class in the history of civilization and how they did it. And they did it through the kind of militancy, you know, laws be damned helped but still before the laws were really in place they were out there fighting for for those those better wages hours conditions on a community level not just you know spot spot by spot yeah i think that's one of the most beautiful things about like the uaw strikes for instance and that message resonating with so many different working class people that corporate greed has gone out of control and we have to stand up collectively to fight together so um, so, you know, we're seeing that, you know, in, in our, our little section of the, the labor movement, you know, in the last five years of looking at the numbers here, 8,400 workers have unionized with us. And like I said, 36 strikes last year. 
Uh, we've never had that level of uh, militant activism before. And if you take like just the example so far this year, so far in 2024, we've already had four strikes and we're actually about to have, <laughs> we're about to have even more very soon, but we, we, we've already had four strikes. If you look at like the strike that we had, it was 24 hours at the Los Angeles Times uh, a couple of weeks ago. That strike um, was decided by the members 12 hours before it started. So in 12 hours, a group that uh, had unionized six years prior and had never been on strike before, in 12 hours, um, about 400 people decided we're going to go on strike today. And they immediately did it and they participated in it to send a clear message to management. And then, you know, from what we understand, that actually ended up saving jobs because of their action, because management was not expecting everyone to go on strike. No, there's, there's a word for that. They have a word for that. It's called solidarity. We used That's to understand it. We used to called. get that. And look, you know, I go back to when I started as as a union worker. You know, back in the uh, back in the in the late 1980s, uh, I had an old timer pull me aside and say, "Hey, kid, you know, we're going to make a teamster out of you." Uh, and you know, said, "Look, you know, before you start spending this big money that you're making." You know, put six months in a tin can and a sock in a savings account, uh, six months of bills, you know, stash it away because you may have to walk across that threshold out onto that picket line to fight for what you have, to fight for what we've we've built over these years. And that mindset has stuck with me because, you know, nobody gave us good wages, good health care, good working conditions. No, no benevolent dictators handed those things out. My grandparents generation fought for that. Generation Absolutely. after generation fought for that to pass it down and to benefit for themselves. So maybe, maybe lessons from the past, something we should be looking forward to in the future. That's the key word, fought. Like, and we have to fight now if we're going to get anything because, you know, companies are not just going to willingly hand out raises, you know. Uh, companies aren't going to just willingly give you job security. Companies aren't going to willingly give you decent health insurance or uh, a good retirement plan. You have to fight for those things. And so we've seen, you know, time and again, when we've had workers, you know, go out and do collective actions, go on strike, um, they actually win really big things. The, the other thing that's kind of happening too, uh, which is really beautiful from my perspective, is it's it's energized our entire union in this real living way and in a way that makes it extremely rank and file run where workers are deciding, you know what, we can do this. And they're not putting like preconditions on themselves. They're not setting themselves up and lowering their own expectations. They're making real expectations and, and setting real goals. And then they're actually going out and being like, you know what, we can go on strike. You know, when we had folks uh, at the Washington Post, um, you know, three weeks before they went out on strike last year, they were not expecting that they would go out on strike. And then they escalated to it. They built to it. They actually ran it and then and and had a picket line, you know, from, from uh, the early morning until the late at night around that building in downtown D.C. So um, we're seeing this new energy. Uh, that we have to like capture and then expand on and continue those fights and build more and more solidarity. Yeah, and bring more people and bring the community in. Because look, you know, have, having been on strike myself in the past, uh, when the community becomes part of it, it gets that much bigger. As the one old timer told me, the bigger the picket line, the shorter the strike. Uh, the more people you get out there, the better, the better it's going to be. So last question I've got for you, how can we help? I mean, this again, this is one of those moments where very much right in front of us, you know, which side are you on? 
Uh, pretty simple to see. Are you on the side of the billionaires and the hedge funds and the Wall Street speculators and the folks who are lining their pockets or, you know, the people who bring you these products, the people who, who bring you the news, the folks who are out there busting their hump every day? It seems simple to me. What do we do? So uh, a few things, you know, always listen to the workers and follow what they're asking you to do. You know, some places, uh, you know, might not be asked, some workers might not be asking you to boycott a certain place yet at that point in time. But um, here's here's some some examples. And, and first off, you know, know that a lot of the working class journalists, I mean, they are absolutely paycheck to paycheck in most every one of these places. They are not overpaid. Uh, we have members who, you know, unfortunately have to go to uh, food banks to feed their families, who have to, you know, uh, sell their blood platelets to to make more money. Like, you know, many journalists are working paycheck to paycheck. So know that first. Um, you know, the folks who have been on strike at uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette uh, for 16 months, those folks uh, have a strike publication, unionprogress.com. So go to unionprogress.com. Uh, it's it's Western Pennsylvania news and coverage of their strike. It's free to subscribe. It's an online website. Go and support them. You can donate to them as well. Uh, we've, we've raised more than $550,000 to their strike fund, which has helped make sure that people stay in their homes uh, and have food on their tables. Um, also, you, know, you can go to newsguild.org and see the different strikes as they happen. Uh, and as they happen, you know, you can find different links to uh, follow them on social media, like the Sports Illustrated Union, uh, as their campaign ramps up, the Conde Union as their campaign continues, Time Magazine as well. Uh, and you can find different ways to support. Some of them have GoFundMe campaigns. Some of them have Action Network letter campaigns where you go and you send a letter to the boss and tell them you stand with the workers. But always just try to find where the workers' voice is and do whatever they say. There you go. Uh, show up to a picket line, as I said all last year, adopt a striker. You know, show up, walk a day with them, bring a bottle of water, a pizza, a box of donuts, a couple of bucks for the till. Uh, but be part of it. Adopt a striker. That's my my idea. Uh, but, John, I appreciate you sharing some thoughts with us. Keep up the great fight. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Rick. Appreciate the time, John. John Schleuss, president of the News Guild, CWA. Check out their website, newsguild.org. We'll get links out on social media. Quick break. Right back after this. Stick around. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So a really important point that I think uh, I, I want to hammer on here after talking with John Schloys. Uh, the reality is, is we're in a moment where corporate America really wants to push back on the gains that workers have made over the last couple of years. And this, understand, this is something that... Um, you know, the Trump people, this is something that hedge fund managers, corporate America, the, the CEO suites most certainly want to be able to do. And that's to put you back in your place, put you working people back to just, just happy to have a job, not asking for too much, 
putting up with the long hours, putting up with the low pay, putting up with the disappearing benefits, putting up with the no retirement security, putting up with the desperation, putting up with all of the stuff that we've been trained for the last 40 years to put up with, and then to be grateful for it. Uh, what we're seeing is corporate America trying to put their, their foot down. And this is that moment, I keep saying, when you see a strike, adopt a striker. It, to me, that simple. Uh, for our free speech audience, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you back here next time for our radio folks. Going to take a quick break uh, back after this. A quick note, March 18th, mark your calendar. Uh, we go one full hour a day on free speech TV. So no more middle breaks like this. Looking forward to that. Quick break. Back after this. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So as you know, I spend a lot of time talking about education and the fact that, uh, sadly, you know, depending on where you live, it's kind of depends on what kind of an education you're going to get. You live in a poor neighborhood like I grew up in, uh, chances are today you're going to get a much worse education than if you lived across the street in a better location. Uh, and that sadly has been borne out by the latest study, the sixth annual edition of the Albert Schenker Institute's report, The Adequacy and Fairness of State School Finance System. Figure that one out. Uh, where they say 39 states are now devoting less money uh, as a part of their economies to K-12 through education than they did before the 2007-2009 recession. We're going backwards. And the question is, is where is that money? Where'd that money go? Did we give it to corporate America? Did we give it to rich people? Or is this near the dividing of the pot? And here to share some thoughts on, well, this report and maybe what we need to be doing. I've asked Mark Weber to come talk with us. He's a special analyst for education policy with the New Jersey Policy Perspective. He's also a lecturer on education policy at Rutgers University and one of the co-authors of this report. Mark, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks, Rick. It's always great to be here. So the sixth annual report, any 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 surprises coming out of this one? Anything new from the last five? Sadly, no. Uh, we are singing the same song over and over again, as far as uh, I, I can tell. Uh, you said something really interesting in the introduction about uh, depending on where you grew up, that would lead to what kind of education you you received. And that was true for different neighborhoods, but in our report, we're showing it's true for different states. There are some states that make more of an effort to adequately fund their schools. Uh, there are some states that work harder. All states have problems with equal educational opportunity, but some work harder to lessen that op or, uh, opportunity gap than other states. And um, what it's coming down to right now, what we're starting to see is this pattern emerge over and over again, where you've got some states that are really making an effort to try to fund their schools adequately, and you've got some states that are not. And this is, I, I think, one of the biggest uh, uh, issues facing education right now. Um, we always seem to have these distractions. So the latest distraction is the reading rooms, right? where everybody has their ideas about how to teach reading. I'm not saying that's not important. I am saying that if you don't have 
a baseline of adequate funding, it doesn't matter how you teach reading, you're just not going to be able to have the resources to do it properly. So that's what we try to uh, point out in this report. And again, we're finding this pattern where we just uh, have too many children who are attending schools that don't have what they need to meet their educational uh, goals. You know, what I find interesting is I've talked to a number of Republican legislators over the years, and they always say the same thing as a response to what you said. Well, you know, we can't throw money at the problem. And, you know, money's not the solution. I go, well, you know, money you know, doesn't matter until you don't have it. Uh, if you don't have the adequate funds to hire the proper staff, to have, you know, the, the right facilities and, and, and be able to solve some of the societal problems that you especially high poverty areas have, you're going to get poor outcomes. And, and I'm sorry, slashing and burning uh, budgets is not the way forward. And also not just slashing and burning budgets, but coming up with silver bullet solutions, uh, especially in poor neighborhoods, that's not going to do it either. Right. That's exactly right. You know, our lead author, uh, Bruce Baker, who's really the, the one who conceived of these models that we use and, and, these measures that we we've developed over the years. Uh, Bruce has a great saying about this. You can't spend wisely if you don't have money to spend in the first place. Everybody's for having schools spend wisely. We should and, and the public should hold schools to account for making good decisions about where we put our money. But if you don't have the money to begin with, it doesn't matter anyway. And and this to me, that argument is so strange. Nobody would make this argument about the military. I mean, certainly we're we're all against military uh, spending waste, but nobody would say that you can't have money to be able to buy bullets and then expect the military to do its job. Uh, we, we say the same thing about law enforcement. Why don't we say this about education? Why is it so hard for people to understand that it costs money to run schools? Now, the one issue that that you just brought up that I do think sometimes uh, we need to do a better job of getting the public to understand is that some kids need more funding in order to have the same opportunities as other kids. The obvious example, if you have a child who has a learning disability, say the uh, they are deaf blind or say they have a traumatic brain injury or they're on autism spectrum, I don't think anybody would argue that that child is going to require more resources. And I don't think that too many people would begrudge them that. Well, we have to think the same way about poverty. And we have plenty of evidence that this is the case. Children who are in poverty need more resources in order to equalize their educational opportunity. And yet we do exactly the opposite in almost every state in the country. We spend more on schools that have low poverty rates, on neighborhoods uh, and school districts that have lower rates of poverty than we do in schools that have higher rates of poverty. It's exactly the opposite right. of what we should be doing. But isn't that because, you know, we, most of the time we, we, we fund education through local property taxes. So clearly neighborhoods who have higher property values are going to have more tax dollars to fund their schools, which then raises the, the value of their property. It's, it's, it's a positive you know, snowball upward making things positive. But on the, on the other side of this, if you live in a, in a high poverty area with low property values, well, 
uh, there's there's a problem. These are perpetual motion machines, right? I, I what you're describing is exactly right. You have high property values that that leads to more money, that leads to better schools, that leads to high property values, and so on. And the cycle works in the other way as well. Um, I tell my uh, graduate students uh, who are studying education uh, funding, a lot of times they'll say, well, why don't we get rid of property taxes? Unfortunately, it's not that simple. One of the things about property taxes is that they're stable. They tend not to fluctuate over time. And you want to have a stable source of revenue when you're uh, involved in funding something like a school. Yeah. But the clear negative is that they are regressive and it's difficult to have equity. So what we need is a good mix of different kinds of uh, revenue. That's the kind of thing that we've proposed before uh, in a report last year. We think the federal government should get more involved. And if a state shows that it's making an effort, it's doing its best to raise funding for its schools, the federal government ought to come in and help those states that don't have the capacity to raise adequate funding for themselves. So let, but, me, let me stop you here because this is this is a, this is a, this is something that is going to really grate on me now, because I'm looking at your report and your report says. Uh, about 60% of the nation's students that we identified as being chronically underfunded districts, uh, the 20% of districts with the most inadequate funding in the nation are in just 10 states. You go through Alabama, you go through Arkansas, you go through Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nevada, New Mexico, North Carolina, Texas. With the exception of New Mexico and sometimes Nevada, those are all heavily red states who in most cases have made choices not to fund schools, not to, to, to tax people to use that money for education. So wouldn't this just be more of a transfer from states that are willing, like New York and California, to, to fund these red states that are the basically tax moochers? It's a great question, Rick, and it, it really gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, I'll reiterate what I said was the federal government, we believe, should get more involved if states are making an effort to raise adequate funds. You mentioned uh, Mississippi on that list. Mississippi, according to our report, actually makes a good effort uh, in terms of a percentage of its economy to raise funding for its schools. The problem is Mississippi is a very poor state. It doesn't have a very big economy and it can't raise a lot of money. Contrast that to Florida. Florida is a state that has adequate uh, capacity to raise its taxes and yet it's refused to do so. I agree with you, unless a state like Florida is willing to step up and do what it's supposed to do, I don't think the rest of the nation should fund that. I thought it was really interesting. I guess it was this past week that uh, Ron DeSantis was pointing to Florida and saying, well, we th I think uh, Florida is so well run, it ought to be a, a model for the rest of the nation. No. Well, when it comes to school funding, I can tell you that it is actually a very poor model and definitely one that other states should not follow. Now, you know, I grew up in a housing project on the west side of Cleveland. I grew up in a high poverty neighborhood. So this this issue to me is 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 important because, you know, I want that kid growing up in the same place that I grew up to have the same opportunities that I had, at least the same opportunities that I had, if not better. 
Um, but I don't see that. Sadly, I'm I'm not seeing that. And now, when I was a kid, busing was all the all the the rage, and we we had to live through that. And I remember one of the arguments that came out of the busing movement was instead of moving kids around, how about we just move districts around? You know, like we do with congressional districts, can't we just redraw school districts and put you know wealthier people into poorer districts to kind of raise the income levels up? Because we do know in districts with wealthier people, they're going to want better things for their kids too. Well, you would think that, except a lot of the uh, states that you were talking about that inadequately fund their schools, they have countywide districts. Florida is a good example of that. So it's got compared to say New Jersey or Pennsylvania, other places in the Northeast that have a lot of small home rule districts, Florida has very big ones. The Florida's problem is overall, it doesn't want to raise uh, uh, revenues. Right. And it, in fact, we, we have pretty good indication that for wealthier families, they will tend to opt out of the public system altogether in schools like that, or they will be uh, go out into the private market and provide all sorts of supplemental uh, things for their uh, uh, children that uh, children who are in poverty don't get to have. Um, it, it's it's a fundamental question of values, Rick. For me, do you really believe in true equality? Do you really believe in true equal opportunity? Well, if you do. Every child should have a great education. A great education should not be denied to a child simply because of the tax capacity of where they live. And so our report is saying it is time to start making some real good public policy choices and get the funding into schools that need it uh, in order to equalize these educational opportunities. Now, one of the things, and to, to highlight this, one of the things that you point out in this report, that the biggest gaps in the mon most unequal opportunities are in states like Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts, um, where, you know, like, I think you're know, laying this out, where you have very wealthy districts, you have very wealthy, uh, you know, you know, people wanting the best for their kids, and sadly, you have high poverty areas. Uh, yeah, how does I the federal government get involved in in places like this, uh, what would that mechanism look like? And I guess what I'm asking is what should we be doing? Because I want to make sure that, as I said, I want to make sure that that kid growing up where, where I, I grew up uh, has, has an opportunity and doesn't end up like a lot of my friends, uh, you know, on, on, you know, social programs in prison or, or worse. So what, yeah. what I guess should we be doing? I, you know, it's, you mentioned the federal government. I live in New Jersey. That's one of those unequal states. And if you look at our report, there are some inadequately funded districts in New Jersey, but there most are adequately funded. The problem is that there, as you point out, there is a huge difference between extremely wealthy districts that are spending a lot of money and districts that might be spending enough to meet modest standards, but certainly aren't equivalent to these other very wealthy uh, districts. I'm not very optimistic. I'm not a political scientist, but I'm not very optimistic that the federal government is in any position to come in and do something about that. I think, and I, in my own work with New Jersey policy perspective, we are looking for action at the state level. And I think we're more likely to see that be successful. We have seen movement toward full funding of New Jersey's uh, uh, school funding formula. But we also believe that we have to relook at the formula and really take a look at what is an adequate education. What does it mean to actually fully fund uh, a school? And 
as part of the 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 process of looking at that, we want to make sure that we have a revenue system in place where we don't punish anybody for spending uh, uh, on their schools, but at the same time, there is enough revenue overall that everybody can have an equal educational opportunity. There's some technical kind of programs that we can do to solve that too. We could take commercial property uh, and manufacturing uh, property, things like that, and uh, instead make it available statewide so it's not available just uh, at the local level that, as a taxing capacity. There, there are other things that, that we can do, but again, for me, I'm much more optimistic we can make those changes at the state level than at the federal level, especially given who's in the House of Representatives right now. Yeah, last, last line of questioning I've got for you, kind of off, off report, maybe part of this plays into it, but you know, it seems to me, especially in high poverty areas, we always come up with these silver bullet ideas um, you know, these these quick fixes, you know, hey, we've got this newfangled idea. Well, we know what works. Uh, look at the wealthier districts and look at what they do and maybe maybe emulate some of that. Smaller class sizes, better paid teachers, better resources, kids who have breakfast, lunch and dinner, you know, you know some stability, things like that. Uh, but yet we come up with, you know, cyber charter schools, charter schools, vouchers, uh, you know, you name the, the, uh, the, 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 the letter program after lettered program always to divide the, the money that the little money that they've got um or am i just am i just being cynical no i i think you're i think you have described the last 30 years of education policy in in america and i hate to say it uh in many ways the democrats have been as guilty as the republicans of this um we're going to come in we're going to have school choice we're going to diminish the uh power of teachers unions we're going to change the way we teach reading. We're going to have teacher evaluation, right? All of these things, we try them and they don't work. And if it, as you said, Rick, if you look at two districts, one that is quote unquote successful and the other quote unquote failing, look at what the differences are. Both of them will have unionized uh, uh, teacher uh, uh, cores. Both of them will have uh, public schools uh, both of them will be tied to geographic areas. Both of them will have similar curricula. What's the difference? The difference is resources. The difference is class sizes. The difference is teacher salaries. The difference is, is broad and rich uh, curricula. These are the things that we know work. We know that kids are more successful when they are in a well-funded school. That's what we got to do, but that's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to make political choices. And so when you have, as you say, the s silver bullet, that looks that's very tempting to put into your gun and think, oh, well, we've solved everything. It's not going to work, folks. We have to adequately fund schools. There's just no way out of it. Yeah, well, it hasn't worked, and I don't see any anything to tell me that the future is going to give us any different results. Uh, we need to do what we what we know works. Uh, but, Mark, I appreciate you taking some time sharing some thoughts on this report. We'll make sure we get links out on social media, how folks can take a look at the report. Uh, good stuff. Thanks, Rick. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, our good friend Mark Weber. I uh, want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at com. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
this day in labor history, the year was 1960. That was the day that four black freshman students from the Agricultural and Technical College of North Carolina sat down to make a stand for justice. Ezell Blair Jr., Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, and David Richmond visited a whites-only lunch counter at the Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina. They were determined to challenge the racial discrimination of the Jim Crow South. They had planned their actions ahead of time, arranging for media coverage. The A&T four took their seats at the counter, ordering coffee and a slice of cherry pie. Soon, police arrived to eject the four black patrons. They refused to give up their seats. They stayed until the counter closed, returning the next day with more supporters. The sit-in had been a successful strategy of the U.S. labor movement in the 1930s. It was a powerful tactic to build solidarity, garner public attention, and bring about change. Members of the Congress of Racial Equality had also used the sit-in during their organizing for civil rights in the 1940s. The Greensboro action sparked an unprecedented wave of sit-ins for civil rights. Mass mobilization for sit-ins swept the South. That year, thousands of black students participated in sit-ins or marched in support of the actions. These black students faced insults, violence, and 1,500 were arrested. Their actions brought national attention to Southern segregation and helped to set in motion the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In 2010, the AFL-CIO held a 50th anniversary commemoration with the three living participants of the Greensboro sit-in. AFL-CIO Executive Vice President Arlene Holt-Baker told the men, we thank you for the vision, the faith, for being crazy enough to believe you could change America and make it better for us. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I'm not quite sure when the Babylon Bee turned into the onion. Not sure. They used to they used to try and be, you know, like conservative news. Now it looks like they've completely jumped the shark and have gone full-on onion with the, the headlines. And look, the, the the Taylor Swift derangement syndrome, wow, the right losing their minds over over Taylor Swift. And and the headline over at the Babylon Beat caught my attention. Uh, <laughs> it's a long one. Conservatives un, uncovered Democrat plot to turn Taylor Swift into an international pop star and the Kansas City Chiefs into a dynasty so Swift could date a chief player and leverage the collective media coverage to get Joe Biden reelected. What a plot! And who could have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? Uh, now this is the same the same organization there at the the B uh, that that had the the headline. Uh, Brock Purdy excited to finally see Taylor Swift live, as he can't afford uh, era t- tour tickets. Um, and, and look, they they were fairly expensive, uh, but. Uh, this this evidently is conservative news. And look, when you're when you're reporting on conservatives and conservative causes, I guess I guess this is the best you can do. So I guess good on them. You know, you, you might as well go full on fake news satire and and jump the shark and try and compete with the onion. Uh, but here here's the thing: when you've got some real things to talk about, Chuck Grassley evidently um, is now saying you know that bipartisan. Tax bill that that people were gonna gonna maybe you know pass the child tax credit, make sure that we don't have hungry children, uh, maybe do something about the uh, uh, the salt tax. 
you know, something that the conservatives want, mind you, that Trump did that they want fixed. They want undone. Uh, Grassley says, eh, maybe not. No, And you know why? Here's his quote. Passing a tax bill that makes the president look good, mailing out checks before the election, means he could be re- re- he could be reelected. And then we won't extend the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, he said, look, it's going to make Biden look good. Can't do that. It's going to improve the Democrats' chance to hold the White House. Can't possibly do that. And look, he's not alone. The sad reality is, is the Senate is now losing their mind as you've got GOP leaders going, you know, that bipartisan you know, uh, border deal that we, we may have been close to? That's dead on arrival. Uh, because, well, it, it could... It, it, it could make the president look good. Could could help him get uh, get reelected. Yeah, could could do that. <laughs> and you go, um, isn't that your job to get stuff done? If there really is a crisis at the border, if there's really really a problem, shouldn't you do that? Now, Representative uh, Troy Nels, a Republican from Texas, uh, said Tuesday. Congress doesn't have to do anything to secure our border, our southern border, and fix it. Congress doesn't have to do anything. It's the president's job. He says, quote, why would I help Joe Biden uh, approve his dismal 33.5% approval rating when he can fix the border and secure it on his own? Uh, He can secure it on his own through executive order. No, not really. Uh, But here's the thing. This This is what they do. They say, look, they look, look, crisis, problem, but no solutions, no fix, no, no action. Lots of, lots of words, lots of chaos, lots of finger pointing, no accountability, no responsibility, no action. And it's all about the politics. When Chuck, Chuck Grassley, a guy who's been in the Senate forever and wasn't always crazy, now comes out and says, well, no, well, we're, we're not going to do anything that makes Biden look good, even though, even though in his state of Iowa, it would help working people, even though in his state, it would help people who need it the most. This is the part that's most infuriating. We, we have these people in Congress who are looking us right in the eye going, yeah, we know you're struggling. We know you need help. We know there's a problem. We know we need to fix it. But screw you, we're not doing it because us, we're more important than you. That's what this is about. This is about their political goals, their political ideology, their political dreams. doesn't matter if your children go to bed hungry. doesn't matter if your children are now going to have to enter the workforce to be able to support the family. In fact, folks in Iowa... Representatives there are going, yeah, absolutely. Get those kids back into the meat in the slaughterhouses. Legislature in Iowa or in Indiana, go get those kids back out on the farm. Yeah, they don't need to go past the eighth grade. It was good enough for our grandparents. It's crazy. And and the thing is, is <laughs> our our mainstream media, are they covering this? Am I missing a bunch of the this conversation? When they're looking us in the eye and telling us, we're not doing a damn thing for you. We're doing nothing for you. Doesn't that make you go, 
maybe we don't vote for these people. Maybe it's time to throw these these bums out. Doesn't it make you angry? I mean, look, I know, I know this country is run on outrage and fervor and anger. I get that. But this is something, honestly, this is something to get upset about. This is something to be mad about. This is something to get your, your panties in a bunch over. You're paying this guy to tell you, I'm doing squat for you. And you'll like it. And you'll vote for me. Because I've trained you to hate the other guy that much more. Yeah, yeah, that's what they've done. And how do you like it? Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. You miss any portion of the program, grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Uh, thanks so much for being here. As always, thank you. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.